Let's go Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room, little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible, we would invite you to take that physical one home. The reason for that's incredibly simple. We believe that God uses his word for all kinds of important things, but chief among those important things is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. Like uh, We want you to know God, and like this is a season that we definitely want you to know God. And so uh, uh, if you don't have a Bible outside of this place, take that one home and start reading it. It'll be the biggest joy of my week. I mean, that we, I mean we, we already lost MLB and NBA and soccer this week. So like you reading the Bible is a really high thing for me. All right. And so uh, also, by the way, I forgot to take my Claritin this morning. So if you hear me sniffling a lot, it's because of that. Just giving you a heads up. I just want you to know that. Uh, no, uh, Romans chapter 15. Uh, so we're on the tail end now of a series that we've been working on uh, all this last year uh, that we've been calling Just and Justifier. It's a slow-ish walk through the book of Romans. Uh, Paul writes the, the book of Romans, uh, the, the, the letter to the church at Rome is another title for it, in uh, about 56 AD, we think. Um, and his goal is to recruit people from the church at Rome to help him take the gospel on to Spain. All right? He's in Corinth we think when he writes this west of there is Rome further west than that is on to Spain we know that Paul uh, later on actually next week we're going to look at it he says in chapter 15 my plan is to go to Spain he wants to recruit people financial help people to go with him to plant a church there evangelize people share the gospel there and so he sees the church at Rome as an ally in his cause all right He's never been to Rome by this point, but he's heard a lot of really good things about him. Right? He's heard God do this. He's heard God do that. He's eventually going to get to Rome, and it's not going to go well for him. Right? He's going to spend a couple of times in jail in Rome. But by this point, he doesn't know them yet. He has no contact with this church other than what he's heard. But instead of just saying, hey, guys, we're on the same team. How about you help a brother get to Spain? All right? He instead crafts a masterful, logical argument uh, for the global need of the gospel and why God is raising up Paul and others to take that gospel to the nations. In other words, Romans is a logical argument for why people need to know Jesus and what God is doing to reveal Jesus to people. All right? That's what Romans is in a nutshell. And over the last month or so, we've, we've been digging into the application of these truths, right? Uh, beginning in chapter 12, Paul begins to, to wrap his gospel superstructure, his, his skyscraper is the picture that we've been using. He begins to wrap this superstructure in the practical. practical. He begins to put meat on the bones, or, or we can say it this way. He begins to explain to us how we live out these eternal realities that he's just unpacked. Right, that, that's the shift that happens in chapter 12. How does it play out in a normal, everyday, you know, you're just a normal guy kind of way? How does it play out for sinners who deserve wrath but instead have been shown grace? What does life look like after that? How does it, what does it look like when I go to work or in a week or two when I go back to school to press into the life of the church and what does it look like to be those who are no longer primarily Jew or Gentile, but rather reconciled saints? What does that look like? Has someone who is no longer bound by the law serve those who come to the table with very different backgrounds and consciences than my own? What does that look like? And Paul's a good pastor, and so he begins to answer these spiritual questions, right? And he, he answers them within the context of the church. He answers them within the context of the, the 
earthly domains, things like government and stuff like that, how we respond to and interact with them. And he also answers these questions on an interpersonal level. Our, our relationships that each of us have. And if I could summarize his, his answers over the last few weeks, it would be this. Think less of yourself, think more of others, and play the longer kingdom of God game. That's, that's his aim there. All right? He's got all these layers of question and all these layers of answer, but that's still the answer every time. Think less of yourself, think more of others, play the longer kingdom of, of God game. Get your eyes off of yourself, look for ways to serve, and aim for what's eternal rather than what's temporary. That's his trajectory. And so the last two weeks, we've been digging into the, to the balance between Christian liberty and our responsibility to sometimes lay down those liberties for the good of others. And, and Paul's not quite done with that line of argument. And so we, we're going to look at it again in Romans chapter 15. You ready to look at it with me? Verse 1. Paul says this, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Okay, so same logic as the last two weeks, right? Our, our liberties don't exist just for ourselves, but as things, uh, as tools that we can pick up or put down at our leisure based on the more pressing concern of serving the ones around us that God has given us and called us to edify. That's what our liberties are for. They're not just to serve ourselves. They're actually for the good of others. And we can pick them up or we can set them down based on whatever we need to do in the moment. I don't know about that, Stephen. That sounds like people pleasing to me, right? That sounds fearful. We, we, we're not a people of fear. God hasn't given us a spirit of fear. No, we, we have freedom in Christ, right? I mean, that's kind of the thing that comes back. I mean, that sounds like you're, you're being a slave to people who are who aren't as mature as you. What do you mean you got to make them happy? You'll never be free if you're always worried about others. Right? That's how the conversation normally goes. And honestly, in some cases, that, that might actually be what's going on. Like, I mean, we definitely live in a culture that's growing less and less capable of engaging in things outside of their comfort zone, right? Just watch the news for half a second. That's kind of the world we live in now. I, I, I actually see that as a problem for the future of our civilization. Like We need to be able to, to engage with different views. That, that's a problem that we can't do that, but that's not what Paul's not talking about. That's not what Paul's talking about here. That's not what's going through his mind. People-pleasing, as our culture would typically define it, is bad, right? It, it always is bad. Whether you're dealing with secular circles or sacred circles, people-pleasing is always rooted in a sinful desire to be seen a certain way. Always. For some, it's a desire to, to be seen as competent, right? Maybe some of you struggle with this. You, you'll bend over backwards to get the job done. And, and like the world is going to fall apart if you're ever seen as the one who can't get the job done, right? I, I happen to know somebody very personally that's like that. I won't name her name. Um, for others, for others, it's a desire to be seen as compassionate. This is me. I, I want to be seen as more compassionate than the next guy. And so I can be guilty of this one, right? Anybody else? Oh, oh am I the only honest one in here? <laughs> I, I, I care more about you, and so you need to trust me rather than that other guy, right? For others, it's a desperate desire to be liked. 
To be seen as like, likable or valued or, or for some maybe just to be seen at all. There's most assuredly a sinful version of people pleasing, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. That's not what's going through his mind. He's calling us to a core level love for others that seeks to elevate them before yourself. That's what he's aiming at here. A love that, that joyfully makes sacrifices so that someone else can grow in maturity. Remember our cheat sheet? Think less of yourself. Think more of others. Play the longer kingdom of God game. But there's something else to notice in here. Uh, look back at verse 1. We who are strong have, and what's that word? An, an obligation so Paul says it's not merely a loving idea for those who are strong to lay down their liberties. No, he says that we are obligated to do so. Now, because we live in a highly litigious society, what, like every single one of us in here, myself included, we immediately think contract, right? We have an obligation here, right? And, and there are a lot of things in our country that, that we only do because we are legally required to do so. If, if I'm not legally required, then technically you can't make me. Th those kind of things. And there are, there are lawyers in little rooms around big tables right now arguing over the exact wording of contracts to prove whether or not something is strong enough language to actually force someone to do something. I mean, this is the kind of world that we live in. And Paul's, Paul's not speaking to contractual obligation here, though. He's speaking of a moral obligation. And there's a difference a legal obligation comes from an external authority carrying out the threat of penalties if you don't hold up your end. Do this or else. Do this or we'll fine you. Do this or we'll throw you in jail. Do this or we'll take your thing away, right? That, that's, a, that's a legal authority bearing weight upon you. A moral obligation, though, is different. A moral obligation comes from an internal sense of right and wrong. An internal sense of right and wrong. A deep-seated understanding of what is good and what is proper and what ought to be done. And that doesn't mean that there are no external forces driving that, but the pressure works from the inside out, not from the outside in. It's a different angle of attack. And there very well may be external consequences from the people around you for failing in a moral obligation, but that's just because everyone in the room has the same moral understanding as you do. Right? Everybody comes to the table with the same understanding of, well, this ought to be done, and shame on you for not doing it. So what is that thing for us? The obligation that Paul is speaking of here is, is not one that says do this or be kicked out of the church. It's one that's rooted inside of you and based on something you instinctively understand to be true. So what is it that pushes us to lay down our rights for others? Well, look at verse 3. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Verse 4, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Okay, so our moral obligation, the, the reason why Jesus' people are called to joyfully lay down our liberties and submit ourselves for the good of others, right, for the good of those who are weak, the reason why we're called to do that is because it's precisely what Jesus did. Full stop. It's what Jesus did. 
And maybe you don't have much of a Bible background, so let me flesh some of this out, uh, out for you. Here's a little small sampling of some New Testament stuff we can look at. Uh, John 4, Jesus says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. John 5, I can do nothing of my own initiative. John 6, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In the garden, in Matthew 26, Jesus tells the Father while he's praying, Yet not as I will, but as you will. The writer of Hebrews points to Jesus and he says, Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful, who was faithful to him who appointed him. And probably the one that everybody in the room is the most familiar with, Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, Paul tells the church in Philippi, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. <gasps> guys submitting yourself for the good of others for the good of those who are weak is literally the mo of the incarnation it's it's why jesus came in other words jesus came for the purpose of dying for our good Jesus willingly and joyfully laid down all the perks and privileges of a heavenly throne room. They were his by right. No one could take them from him. No one could say, that doesn't belong to you. But instead of clinging to them, he willingly and joyfully laid them down and took on the form of a servant. He was obedient. He was obedient. All things are yours in Christ. Nobody can get to debate that. There's no argument about that reality. They're, they're yours. Like there's no external spiritual authority that gets to come and say, no, 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 no. That one's not on the table for you. They belong to you because they belong to Jesus. And because you belong to Jesus and they belong to Jesus, they belong to you too. They are yours by right. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. But while there may not be an external authority, there is an eternal, an internal sense of what is good and what is right based on what you have seen play out in front of your face by Jesus himself. We have a moral obligation and it's rooted in the reality that we want to look like our king. And so when you willingly and lovingly lay down your liberties in, in order to serve the one who is weak, when you, when you put aside what rightfully belongs to you and you actively love your brother more than your liberty, guys, in that moment you get to look like Jesus. And I really hope I don't have to sell you on how great an idea that is. You get to look like Jesus. The sacrifice of Jesus is the key message of the New Testament. But it's not just a New Testament reality. Because in verse 4, Paul says the scriptures were given for our instruction, endurance, and encouragement. At the time he's writing this, the New Testament didn't exist yet. Some pieces of the New Testament had been written by this point, but most of it actually hasn't by 56 AD. And so when Paul's talking about the scriptures, what is he talking about? Talking about the Old Testament, right? Guys like Isaiah... We looked at this around Christmas time. Guys like Isaiah were really, really clear about this. The Messiah would come, the one who was coming down the pipe, the Messiah that was coming, that promised guy, he was going to be a suffering servant. Suffering servant. It has always been God's plan, always, from eternity past, to save sinners precisely, exactly this way. Exactly this way. 
Or as we've already looked at in the series, Romans 5, 6 tells us, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. That the strong lays down what belongs to them for the good of those who are weak. And everything in the Bible points to this reality, everything. And so for the follower of Jesus, our call is to look like Jesus and call me crazy, but I really think he'd have us chasing after that. But while we have a very clear responsibility, we are not for one second alone in this stuff. I think a lot of preachers can get up on, on a stage and behind a pulpit or whatever you want to call it and, and they can bang on some things and they say, do this and do this and do this. Something changes in verse 5 that we need to pay attention to. What does it say? May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So Paul says that we're in this together, right? And that's good news because, uh, like, like I kind of need a family. We're operating as a family here, and as, as a team. And, like, like, that's something I desperately want more of in my life. I, I don't know how you come to the table on that, but that's definitely how I come to the table. Like, I, I need more and more of this in my everyday, not just my Sunday. I, I desperately need this family dynamic where we're all kind of helping each other out here and helping each other grow here and all getting better at the same time here. But our help actually goes significantly deeper than just the family. So according to these three verses, whose strength do we operate in here? It's God's strength. Not mine, not yours, not even the collective we. It's God's strength that we operate in. This is a grace-fueled reality from start to finish. From start to finish, and for two reasons. One, because nobody in here has the endurance or the self-fueled encouragement to look and love like Jesus does on their own. Or anybody want to lie and say, yeah, I do. <laughs> I don't. Wh- whether you see it in yourself or not, you, guys, it's actually really, really good news. Really good news. Because our call is never to sufficiency. Never to sufficiency. It's to faith and obedience, Right? I, I don't have enough, but my Jesus does. My Jesus does. And the moment you realize that, you can actually stop digging your hole deeper and deeper. This is a grace-fueled thing from start to finish, or else we've got no hope here. Because I can't get it done. But there's a second reason that this needs to be grace-fueled is because it places the glory for success on the rightful person. What does Paul say in verse 6? That together you may, with, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Guys, it's for God's glory that we welcome each other, not our own. Like, it's a really nice compliment when a pastor hears, oh, your church is so welcoming, and I felt, it just felt like everybody was friendly there, and I walked in, I just felt at home. Like, we kind of want that. We kind of chase that here. We want people to think that about us. But listen, if we get that, and God is not glorified in the midst of that, we failed. Absolutely failed. 
It is for God's glory that we welcome and serve each other, not our own. Paul's saying that the heavens will ring out celebrating the glory of God and his greatness when we welcome each other in this way. The world will get a picture of God's glory when we walk in self-sacrificing humility with each other. This is a gospel issue. This is a fame of Jesus issue. We can, all, we can also take a deeper step into this because look at verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a what? A servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, the, the leaders of the early, uh, of, of, in the Old Testament. Uh, verse 9. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, there, uh, Paul's going to quote several Old Testament uh, quotes here. He says, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Verse 10. And it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Verse 11. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let the peoples extol him. And verse 12. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him the Gentiles hope. Okay, so Paul says that Jesus walked in earthly obedience, and he illustrated that earthly obedience through the the act of circumcision. The responsibility, the requirement on Jewish men to mark their bodies in a specific way to show that they were uh, partakers of the covenant of God. They were part of God's people. Jesus fulfilled all righteousness. We're taught. All righteousness. He did every single thing that was expected of him so that he could perfectly fulfill the Jewish law in the entirety. And Paul says here that he also did it to confirm the promises that God made to the patriarchs. Jesus was everything, every single thing that God said the Messiah would be. So when he comes to, to Adam, he makes a promise in the garden that it won't always be this way. An offspring is coming who will crush the serpent's head. That promise is fulfilled. And when he comes to, to Noah, and when he comes to Abraham, and when he comes to these guys, he comes to this one, and he comes to this one, and he comes to this one, and he makes these promises, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this. Jesus fulfills every single one of those promises. God made lots of promises to the patriarchs. But that's not all who he made promises to. This isn't just a Jewish thing. God also made a bunch of promises concerning the Gentiles. Namely, that he would show them mercy and he would receive glory by it. And then Paul quotes, starting in verse 9, Paul quotes at least four different places in the Old Testament. Some argue that it's actually five different places, depending upon how you, you read the first one. Um, but whether it's four places or five places, here's the cool thing. Paul pulls a quote from every single major, major genre segment of the Old Testament. The law, uh, you, you know, the first five books of the Bible written by Moses, the Pentateuch, that's verse 10. That comes from Deuteronomy 32. The history, that's verse 9, pulls from 2 Samuel. The writings, the wisdom literature, that's verse 11. Paul pulls that from Psalm 117. The, the prophets, verse 12 is a quote from Isaiah. So what, what does all this mean? Why is that important to, to learn? is because we're not talking about some minor little doctrine that's pulled from some obscure little quote in the Old Testament that nobody knows about. This is the story of 
the Old Testament, every single part of Israel's story, God's saying, hey, I'm gonna pull in the Gentiles. I'm gonna pull in the Gentiles. Hey, I'm gonna pull in the Gentiles. I'm gonna be made famous. I'm gonna be made glorious. I'm, everybody's gonna see how amazing I am by me pulling in the Gentiles. I'm gonna show them mercy. I'm gonna show them grace. They are going to be a part of the story. Over and over and over and over again, all throughout Israel's history, this is the coming promise. It is a central theme of the scriptures. God saving the Gentiles is as all over this thing as you want to make it. Oh, okay, but why is that important? I mean, we're, we already covered the inclusion of the Gentiles in the kingdom multiple times throughout this series. Like, like Paul just kind of beat it to death in the earlier chapters. And weren't we talking about the strong willingly laying down their liberties for the good of the weak? Like, like how is that connected to this? It would seem like these are two different sections and probably should be handled separately. Why are they connected? Well, if it's always been God's plan, if it's always been God's plan from eternity past to, to welcome both Jew and Gentile into the same kingdom family, then that means that it's also always been God's plan to put these two very different cultures in one place and expect them to get along. It's always been coming down the pipe. Remember how I told you a few times now throughout this series that there's this one outside issue that was going to bear weight on Paul's gospel skyscraper, this, this power dynamic that exists between Jewish background Christians and Gentile background Christians? So what do you think the ultimate answer to that power struggle is? To get their eyes off of themselves. Stop to think less of themselves think more of others, play the longer kingdom of God game. The answer is to sac sacrificially welcome and serve those who look nothing like you and think nothing like you and act nothing like you because that's exactly what Jesus does. That's the ultimate answer to this. Follower of Jesus, Jesus' sacrificial love is the reason you are here. And anything added to the mix of that doesn't belong there. Jesus' sacrificial love is the reason you are here. He is the God-man who came and lived and died to pay the debt of sin for Jew and for Gentile. To reconcile them together as he first and foremost reconciles them to himself. And so what ends up happening is that a room full of people who have nothing else in common but the grace of God lavishly poured out on them what ends up happening in that room is that a world-shaking testimony of God's glory is given. People start to go, how did this happen? Who could have possibly put this together? It's a testimony of the, the God who is rich in mercy and who loves with a great and unearned love. It's the God who stands eternal and infinite as both just and justifier. And when we find our rest in the presence of that God rather than the tiny little personal preferences that we all bring to the table, not only do we love our brother as we've been called to, but look what Paul says last. Verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. And so Paul's got a little benediction for us, right? His prayer is that we would be united and filled, but filled with what? Peace and joy and hope. 
Is there anybody in here that just would rather avoid those things today? <laughs> like how many people in our community right now, it's 10.30 so many of them are waking up. How many people in our community right now are desperately looking for those things? And, and Paul says, when you operate as the church ought to operate, when you willingly and lovingly lay yourself down for the good of others, that can't escape being seen here. It can't escape being seen here. It, it will be declared to the nations. Nobody will miss it. Everybody's going to get a picture of the glory of God and what he is doing. Guys, otherworldly satisfaction is on the table for us here, and so is the potential for otherworldly harvest. Both of these things are ours. A church family that's united and filled by the Holy Spirit with those things, peace, joy, sacrificial love for others, hope, uh, that church is in a prime spot to be light in a dark, dark world. And you can't ignore that light. To point people to the supreme goodness of our God and call them into the kingdom, that's a good day. And it's precisely what our world needs right now. So I don't know about you, but I'd like to have a little bit of that for ourselves. So how do we get there? How do we answer these questions specifically for us? What does it look like at Nashville Baptist? Or we could say it a different way. How do we respond to God's word this morning? What do we do with this stuff? Well, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, your response is to press into God. We, and we say that every week, but it's the same answer every week. You repent of your sin and you lean into what he's revealed about himself in Romans 15. That he's the God who both calls you and is surpassingly worthy of that higher mission. He's worthy. So make glad sacrifices today for that glorious kingdom to come. Are there liberties that rightfully belong to you, but you've selfishly clung to, that distract you and others from the shared mission. They're yours. No, no, no spiritual authority could take those from you, but what are you doing? Lay them down. Are there places where you've asserted your freedom and it's slowed the sanctification of your brother or sister? Repent of that this morning so, so that we can get to work on what matters infinitely more, a dogged pursuit of God's glory among the nations. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. We'll have some leaders down front here to talk and pray with you if that would serve you this morning. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, man, I'm glad you braved the awkwardness of coronavirus 19. I'm glad you're here today, but like, you can respond to God's word too and you do that by meeting Jesus by meeting Jesus. Your sin separates you from a holy God. It deserves the wrath of he who is perfectly just. But God is not only just just, he's also the great justifier. And so God made a way where there was no way. Jesus put on flesh and he dwelt among us. He lived the sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living. And he died on the cross as a sacrifice to make payment for your sin. He was raised from the dead as a vindication and proof of his righteousness. As Lord and King, he now calls on you this morning to respond to him in repentance and faith.
You can do that today. Repentance is turning away from your sin and turning towards God. Uh, Faith is just the Bible's word for trust, right? It's the kind of trust, though, that's backed up by the character of he who is trustworthy. You can bank on it. And so you can respond to God's word this morning by taking that step to to follow Jesus. And so I'm going to pray and we're going to sing one more song. That's a time available for you to respond in whatever way God's calling you. But listen, maybe God's calling you to respond in a different way this morning. For for some, it's that you need to respond by joining this church. For others, maybe it's that you need to respond by by uh, saying yes to uh, obedience in baptism. Maybe some of you are, are being called to respond to say yes to the call of mission on your life. Whatever that is for you, this is a time for you to respond. And so I'm gonna pray. We're gonna sing. Let's all respond to God's word this morning. Father, you're good to us. You are so good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for Romans 15. God, I know my heart well enough to know that I cling to things far too often. I clutch and grasp at things that belong to being by right, and you're never going to take them from me. Would you humble my heart? Would you help me see the needs around me? Would you help me look more like Jesus and sacrificially lay down for the good of another? As a church family, as we try our best to operate (laughs) as those who have been forever changed by Jesus, there are still some things that need to change in us. at least in me. Would you give us humble hearts and clean hands? God, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known this morning? Would you open eyes to see? Would you open ears to hear? Would you open hearts to know that you are the God high in the heavens? That you are the God who is sovereign and in control over all things, whether viral or church life. That you are the God who is worthy of laying everything down for. And has promised us far more to come. So God, as we sing and as we pray and as we respond, would you do a mighty work in your people? Help us walk faithfully. In your name we pray. Amen.